in anticipation of this uh, new year and the weekend and New Year's Eve and such, I was thinking this last week about what should I talk to you about? How shall we charge one another to enter into the new year? And what special message does God have for us? So I thought about a number of different things and I thought, you know how apropos it would be to, to finish off our passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And uh, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a perfect passage, because really, he's talking about, and I looked again at my title, Instructions for Life, and how Peter really is instructing the church for life, and how we should live, and the dynamics that are... Uh, the essence, if you will, uh, of being a Christian. And so with that, we're going to charge into the new year and be reminded of these things once again. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open to 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's read once again, verses 7 through 11 together. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled. Well, that sure is good for the new year, isn't it? You could say, in a way, the the end of this year is near. And as we anticipate the next year, we should certainly be uh, clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can what? So that we can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's good. That's a good thing to resolve for the new year, isn't it? Love one another deeply and be willing and able to, because we love deeply, to cover over sins. What that would do, how that would work marvelously in various relationships, wouldn't it? He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And he says, Amen to that. As we read those verses, as we think about them once again, as we bring this passage to conclusion, uh, it's such a rich passage that I almost don't want to finish it. But I know you're anxious to move on. But as we think about this passage, and as I have suggested to you a number of times before, verses 7 through 11 really are a summary of the Christian life. Those five verses summarize for us everything that Peter has said up to this point in his letter and everything really that is the Christian life. And we'll, we'll explore that. We'll just rehearse some of that. This passage reminds us of the fact that faith cannot be removed from the realm of real life. Faith cannot be removed from the realm of real life. You see, what you believe determines not only who you are, but what you do. Isn't that true? 
So we believe a certain thing. We, we believe certain truths. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe a certain way. We have a certain worldview. We have a certain perspective that makes us Christians. That makes us a uniquely different people. And it also determines, as Christians, how we live, what we do. Does that make sense? So again, uh, this passage reminds us of the very real truth that faith cannot be removed at all, beloved, from the realm of real life. People say outside the church, they say, keep your, keep your religion in your church, keep your faith in your church. You can't. I can't keep it in the church. It's got to spill out because that's who I am. We could also say it this way. Those verses really do speak uh, to the fact that salvation is much more than just forgiveness of sin. Salvation is a whole new order of life, is it not? We talked about this last time. We, we said that salvation is more than just forgiveness of sins. And so many times we focus only on forgiveness because we, we find ourselves focusing on the cross. That's the place where sins were forgiven But as I shared with you before, the early church, they did not focus on the cross. It it wasn't just that their sins were forgiven. It was far more than that. They focused on the new life that began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's a whole new order of life. Salvation is a whole new, it's a whole new world is opened. Whole new life has opened up to me. I'm not the same person I was. I'm a new creation, we're told. So to be saved is not just to have my sins forgiven. Beloved, it is to enter into an entirely new kind of life. Paul says it very clearly and very succinctly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, uh, if anyone be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. New creation. Brand new. The old things have passed. The new has has come. Wow, what a tremendous verse for the new year. The old has passed. The new has come. Heretofore, if you haven't really embraced your faith, if you haven't plunged in with both feet, what a tremendous opportunity this new year to say, Lord, this year, I'm going for it. I'm going to plunge in with with both feet. I'm going to be serious. I want to know this new life. Jesus did say, I came that you should have life and have it meagerly, didn't he? No, he said you should come, came that you should have life and have it what? Have it, have it full to the max. That, that, that includes this life as well as the next. Now this new life that we, we're talking about and Peter's talking to us about, this new life carries with it an incentive When you're born again, you're given incentive to live this life. To actually to flesh it out. And the incentive is found in verse 7. He says, because the end of all things, because the the consummation of all things is near, we should then live with a sense of expectancy of Christ's appearing. I should live my life every day. We should live our life every day 
practicing, thinking, you know, he could come back. He could come back at any moment. He could come back at any moment. Am I living my life with a sense of expectancy? Now, that's difficult to do, given all the things that, that uh, distract us and all of our day-to-day responsibilities, duties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But let's contextualize this life. Let's, let's look again at some of the things uh, that Peter tells us. Really make up this kind of life. That we live expectancy, expectantly. So how then shall we live? Well, he moves from, from in verse 7, he moves from speaking to us about an incentive. The end of all things is near. Well, if you, if you just knew, if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the end of all things was near on Tuesday of next week, how would you live your life tonight and tomorrow and the next day? I would hope to think that all of us, and, and certainly there's always room for improvement in every life, isn't there? We'd all turn it up a notch knowing he was coming back. And, and he comes back, we don't want to be found ashamed, lazy, doing stuff we shouldn't be doing being what we shouldn't be, and so forth. So there's incentive. And he moves with the incentives, the instructions. He describes the kind of life, the components that make up this life that he calls us to live. And this really does summarize how we live this new life. What are the components of this new life? Well, he's told us, the last part of verse 7, he speaks to us of personal holiness. How many remember that? Personal holiness. He says to us, that we should what? We should be clear-minded and self-controlled. A clear-minded person. That speaks to what? A person who is, whose thinking isn't fuzzy, thinking isn't distracted, who has a handle on the truth, knows what the truth is, is clear-minded. And a clear-minded person, there, therefore, can be a, also a self-controlled person, exhibiting Spiritual discipline. All for the purpose of being able to commune with God. All of that, that, that complex there, the, 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 the clear-mindedness, self-control, prayer, all of that speaks to the issue of personal holiness. A person who is holy, a person who is growing in holiness... Now understand, holiness means, doesn't, oh, I'm so holy. (laughs) Holiness means a person who is more and more and more set apart for God. More and more and more set apart for His purposes. That person won't be set apart unless they're clear-minded about what God's purposes and will is. I know exactly what God wants. I know exactly what He desires. Why? Because I've been reading it in His book. I've been reading His book. And because I've been reading his book, I know his mind. I know his mind. His mind is capturing more and more. I'm bringing every thought of mine captive to Christ. Because I'm reading his book. Because I'm reading his book, it, it's, it's, it's affecting my thinking. And as a man thinks, so is he. So now my, my life is going to be much more controlled, much more under the guidance and the control of the Spirit. I'll be much more apt to walk after the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. And be able to certainly now really pray. And not fall asleep, not have my mind drift, not be distracted, as so many often, oftentimes we do. This all speaks to the issue of holiness. 
So first of all, he wants us to be people who pursue holiness. Holiness. And then he moves from holiness. That's the, that, that speaks to our relationship directly with God. Then he moves to the horizontal. And he says, above all, love one another. How? Deeply. The word literally in the Greek is the word that we translate fervently. Love one another with fire. Let your love be on fire. Not a complacent kind of love. Not a, a tolerant kind of love. A, 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 an aggressive, on fire love. Above all. And he says, you've got to have this kind of love because if you don't, the next statement is going to be impossible. We need to love one another deeply. Why? Why? So we can, what, forgive one another. So we can forgive one another. Beloved, if we are not loving one another fervently, deeply, chances are our love is just going to be a surface kind of love, and we're not going to be able to forgive. Uh, We may want to, but we won't have the impetus in our life to do it, and we're more apt to then point out each other's sins rather than cover them over. When you love somebody enough, and when you really, really love them, you forgive them. You forgive them. You forgive them, don't you? That's so he talks to us about love. A fervent love that, that will cover sins. A, a love that will be open, gracious, hospitable. And a love that won't grumble. <laughs> a love that won't grumble. And then he moves on to the third of these dynamics. We began to talk about this last time. Personal holiness, love, and the third one is service. Beloved, those three dynamics encapsulate, summarize, speak to the essence of the Christian life. What is a Christian about? A Christian is about holiness. A Christian is about love. And a Christian is about serving. That's why I'm suggesting to you that this passage, these five verses, summarize the whole Christian experience. Everything he's been telling us up to this point. Verses 10 and 11. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Service. To live a life of service. Through whatever gift you have received. What gift is he talking about? Well, we're talking about spiritual gifts. We're talking about spiritual gifts. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes extensively about spiritual gifts. He says now about spiritual gifts. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Verse 4, he says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works them all. Verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And the whole passage relates to, to special gifts called spiritual gifts. It's through spiritual gifts that we serve. You come into the church, you begin to grow in holiness, you begin to grow in love. And now service. And the question is, where do I serve? 
How do I serve? By what means do I serve? By the means of gifting. By the means of gifting is how you serve. Last time we spoke about the extent of these gifts. The extent of these gifts. That every Christian, every true born-again believer has been gifted by God. Because now we're incorporated into the body of Christ. That's a, a, a metaphor that he uses to describe the church. And he uses that same metaphor in this passage. Look at verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. Of all its parts are many. They form one body. So it is with Christ. Verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. So we are all, in effect, a part of the body. Just like the human body is one unit made up of many parts. Do all the parts have the same function? No, the liver has a different function from the kidney. The kidney has a different function from the heart. The heart has a different function from the nose and so forth. We know that. And so the church is, 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 is similarly composed of many parts. Do all the parts of the human body really serve one another? Huh? Do they? Yeah, absolutely. There's this incredible, this, this incredible interaction and interdependence of all the parts of this body so that the overall functioning of the body can be what? Healthy and according to its design. And so the church has been designed the same way by God, made up of many parts. So the extent of our gifts is that every believer has them, and, and every believer in his or her giftedness is absolutely unique. So you have a gift, you have a gift, you have a gift, but all the gifts are different. They're different in their degree, they're different in their extent, they're different in their application, they're different in their ministry, they're all different. I use the analogy of, of God having this palette and, and, and he has these various colors on his palette and every color represents a specific gift and how he takes his brush and he dips it in the various colors and paints you uniquely from anybody else. You're different from everybody else. Uniquely gifted. And it's through that gift that we serve. Well, another question we want to ask about these gifts is, what about the source of spiritual gifts? What about the source of spiritual gifts? Where do they come from? Well, if you look back at 1 Peter, verse 10 of our passage, it says that each one should use whatever gift he has, what? Received. Underline that word received. We have received a gift. We've received it. That implies that somebody gave it to us. If you've received it, someone's given it to you. This is important. I received it. I received it. Somebody gave it to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't pray for it. I didn't plead for it. I didn't work it up. I didn't generate it. I received it. Before you were born, did you pray to be born in a certain race, a certain height, a certain color, a certain giftedness, talent-wise? Did you? No, maybe your parent did. But you were given what you were given. You were equipped with what you were equipped. Humanly, talented-wise, size-wise, color-wise, all that. By God, weren't you? You received what you have. 
The same principle holds true for spiritual gifting. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 calls it Christ's gift. Christ's gift. The word gift is, we get from the, the Greek word charisma, which means very simply grace. It's a gift of God's grace. You didn't earn it because you couldn't earn it. It was something that God simply gave to you. It was supernaturally given, and it is supernaturally energized. These gifts cannot be pursued because they are received. They're not pursued. Just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6 through 6 say, The Spirit gives the gift. The Lord gives the ministry. And God works the effects. All three, you have, the, you have a, the Trinity mentioned right there. They're all involved, all three persons of the Trinity. But the point is, is that God gives it. The Spirit gives it. We receive it. I'm going someplace with that. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. It was, again, given to you. Verse 11 tells us the Holy Spirit gives them, meaning the gifts, to each one just as he determines. So who determines who gets what gifts? The Holy Spirit, that's right. In verse 18, if you look at verse 18, he says this, But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. God has arranged the parts, not only of our human body, but of the body of Christ, just as he wants them to be. Isn't that marvelous to know that God is intimately acquainted with your life and has designed a specific place and gifting and call for you that's, that's, that's unique and different from everybody else? You have received a special gift from Him. But now someone's going to say, look at verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because verse 31 says, Eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, that verse has caused a lot of people some question and some difficulty and some confusion. You would say, it says right there, you're supposed to desire the greater gifts, as opposed to the fact that we have received from God according to His will. May I suggest to you that there are a couple of ways to interpret that verse. I think that what Paul means, one, it, it could be what's called as imperative, a command, or secondly, it could be an indicative. And when you, when you look at the, at the Greek construction of that sentence, they're identical. You can interpret them either way as an imperative, a mood of command, or as an indicative, which is a, a mood, a just statement of fact. Either way. So you have to look, kind of look at the context and discern which one makes the most sense. So, so let me suggest to you, there, there's two possible interpretations, and it's very, very important for us to understand what's the point I believe he's saying you, plural, as the congregation. You, as the congregation, when you meet together, should be desiring the greater gifts to be exercised. When you meet for worship, what should you be desiring? He's not talking about an individual desiring or pursuing a specific gift. He's saying when the church comes together for its worship, it is to desire the greater gifts to be exercised in the midst of the congregation. And what is a greater gift? 
Anybody know? What's the greater gift? Look at chapter 14, verse 1. He says, desire gifts, but especially that what? You should prophesy. Especially that you should prophesy. When the church comes together, you should be desiring the greater gift, the gifts, very simply, that bring you the word of God. I want to know what God has to say about this. I want to know what God has to say to me. See, I think that's what he's talking about. There's a second way, as I said, that's the imperative. The second, the second interpretation is an indicative, and, and you have to kind of read something into the context, which I've done. It could read this way. You are strongly desiring the showy gifts. Now, you could translate the word greater as showy. Because if you understand, in the minds of the Corinthians, sometimes the more showy gifts were, in their minds, the greater gifts. So he's making a statement of fact. This is what you are, in fact, doing. When you come together, you're desiring the more showy gifts. You've made those the greater gifts. He says, but, look at the next verse, but I will show you what? A more excellent way. So something is out of order there. Now, we can't pin anything down. We can't make a definitive statement on it. But I want to suggest to you the point of what he is saying is that either case, this, this verse is directed to the congregation, not to an individual. And there were a lot of individuals real confused about that verse and say, well, it says to pursue. Wait a minute. What gifts has God given you? How has God gifted you? And people have been very, very dissatisfied with their gift or unable or unwilling to pursue a ministry based on how they're gifted because they think they're supposed to desire and pursue the greater gift. Am I making sense? So this is to a congregation that when they gather, when we gather together in worship, don't we want God to talk to us? We want to make room for a prophetic utterance. We want to make room for a word of knowledge. We want to make room for, for God to speak to us through a teaching or a preaching or some prophetic word. That, see, that to me makes sense. We want to together as a congregation pursue the greater gifts, desire the greater gifts, if I may say it that way. So, this is to a congregation, not to an individual. Gifts cannot be sought. They are to be received. That's our bottom line. They are to be received. So we see the extent of the gifts, all believers have them, right? And they're all unique. Every believer is unique in his or her giftedness. We saw the source of the gifts. They are given by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we want to look at the nature of the gifts. The nature of the gifts. Again, we discovered this word, it's a gift. Peter uses the word. Paul uses the word. It's a gift. Again, the word charisma means grace. It's undeserved, it's unearned, it's free, it's given to us freely by the Holy Spirit. It is a gift. That's its nature. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it's motivated, again, by the grace of God. God is motivated, because He's gracious, to give us good gifts, isn't He? Every good thing comes from our Heavenly Father, doesn't it? God has given it sovereignly. He's given these gifts freely to each one of us, and they are controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what exactly is a spiritual gift? What exactly is it? 
It's a special given enablement so that you and I can function according to God's design in the body of Christ to minister to one another for the common good, for the building up of the church. We can't see the, we won't ever see the church built up. Won't ever see the church strengthened unless believers step out in faith and begin to walk in the spirit and begin to minister in their giftedness. That's, that's the bottom line. That's the simple bottom line. That's how we serve. A spiritual gift is a, is a spiritual enabling to which the Holy Spirit just supernaturally works. It's not, it's not this, this is your own power, your own strength, you're doing this yourself. It's because you're full of the Spirit. As you step out, the Spirit guides you and leads you where He wants you, and you find yourself ministering, and it's something that He has already directed and prepared for you to do before He ever created the world. What an incredible miracle. And it's all to minister to the church for the building up, for the common good. And when we come together, we want to be ministered to. We want to be ministers. In fact, we are ministers, aren't we? If you're a Christian, you are a minister. Turn to your neighbor and say that. You know what? You're a minister. I have a spiritual gift. I have a spiritual gift through which God ministers to you. You have a spiritual gift through which God ministers to me. And we're not just talking about human talents here. Those two are God-given, are they not? But we're not talking about human talents. We're talking about something that supersedes human talents. These are special gifts that God births in you, if you will so that you can function in service to the body of Christ. So that the body is built up. And so Peter says, first of all, be holy in your life, doesn't he? He says, be holy. Secondly, be loving in your relationships. Thirdly, he says, serve. 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 And the thing by which you serve is that capacity God has given you called a spiritual gift. There's an obligation, by the way, an obligation. If you look back in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, we have an obligation to use this gift. He says, use it. You see that? Use it. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, for the common good. Use it for the common good, for the mutual benefit of the church. You cannot cease to use it without it having an adverse effect on the church. So we have an obligation to use the gift that he's given to us. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me, I want you to read this passage with me, beginning at verse 12. He says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. We form one body. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Now the body is made up of, of, of uh, is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am a, not a hand, I do not belong to the body. 
it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot save the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot save the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every other part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part receives, rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Every person, every person, Every member is important. You have an obligation, beloved, to use your spiritual giftedness. If you don't, very simply, you're in disobedience to the Word of God. You're in disobedience to the Word of God. And you're functioning against. You're functioning against your new nature because you were saved so that you may serve. If you're not using your gift, you're not serving, you're functioning against that very nature that God has built into you to serve. And you're going to be one frustrated Christian. One frustrated Christian. Furthermore, in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he goes on and he says, use that gift to serve, he says, faithfully administering God's grace. Faithfully administering God's grace. May I suggest to you, we have a stewardship responsibility. Not only an obligation to use the gift, but as a steward over that which God has entrusted to us. Does that make sense? Faithfully administering this gift? We have a responsibility. Who owns the gift? God owns the gift, just like He owns everything, right? Cattle on a thousand hills is His, all the gold and silver is His. But He gets us. He gives us what? Use of it. But it's really all his. The gift belongs to him too. And we are to be what? Stewards over it. He's given those gifts for us to add stewardship over. Beloved, just like everything else in our life, he's given to us for us to be good stewards over. Our time, our energy, our, uh, the money, uh, every possible thing you can think of that he's entrusted to us. These are stewardship issues. So we have an obligation to use our gift. How many remember the parable of the talents in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25? Remember the the three servants, the master was going to go away, and he entrusted one talent, uh, two talents, five talents to to his three servants. Remember that? And he went away on a long trip, and, and the one servant buried the talent, didn't put it to work, didn't use it, and the other two did, and, and brought a return on the investment, if you will. When the master returned, what did he say to the, to the first two? He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And then the third guy came and said, what? He said, I was afraid of you. I, I buried the talent. I didn't use it. And what did he say to him? You're a wicked, lazy servant. Wicked, lazy servant. 
and, and, and judged him. So therein, I believe, is a lesson on stewardship. No matter what it is God's entrusted to us, and especially in this context, spiritual gifting, we are to be good stewards. Now, various efforts have been, have been expended to try to discover spiritual gifts. There are spiritual gift tests. There's computer analysis. You can, you can take a, a, fill out a forms and send them in, and they'll, the computer will come back and tell you what your gift is. Isn't that marvelous? You need a computer to tell you. It's what you do when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Your gift is what you do when you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God to serve the body of Christ, which brings a positive impact. It's just what you do. Why? I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And being full of the Holy Spirit, I must of necessity then, what? Walk after the Spirit. Follow the Spirit's leading. The Spirit is going to show me where to go and what to do and who to minister to and how to do it. Now you can sit back and you can try to dissect it and clarify and say, well, I have this gift, this gift, this gift. That may be the case, but how and what mix? And generally what we do is when we isolate them out we, we, and we singularize them, then we focus on one only. And generally we're not very, very fruitful in our ministry. Your giftedness really comes to the surface. It really becomes effective when we are full of the Holy Spirit. Walking after and guided by the Spirit. That's when we see our gift. That's when we see it at work. Now, if you ask me to totally identify my gift, I told you before, I can't do it. I can't totally identify the giftedness that God has given me. I just know that the Spirit of God uses me when I'm available to Him. If I'm not available to Him, I'm flat. I'm empty. I got nothing. But it's only when I'm available to be used. And my gift isn't for me. Your giftedness isn't for you. My giftedness is for you. Yours is for me. Ours together is for the body. Right? Sometimes we we say, oh, I have this gift. As if, look at me. No, 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 wrong perspective. You're full of yourself. You're not full of the Spirit. I don't preach. I don't preach to listen to my own tapes. That's your job. We serve each other for the common good. For the common good. Let me take you to one. Let me give you one more thought. Peter also speaks about the variety of spiritual gifts in verse 10. Talking about the manifestation of God's grace in its various forms. So there's great variety to this giftedness. Reminds us of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, talking about different kinds of gifts, different kinds of ministry, different kinds of workings or effects of those gifts. So there are all kinds of varieties of gifts. If we can go back to the analogy of the, uh, uh, the, the palette, the painter's palette, uh, a multicolored giftedness. God has all these colors on his palette. And he blends them to make each one of you unique. What a marvelous picture. You and I may have this, the gift of teaching. You and I may have the gift of teaching. 
But each gift is blended differently. Each gift has a unique measure of grace. Each gift has a unique measure of faith in which that gift is to function into a unique special ministry with a unique special effect. Variety. Variety. There's great variety in the body of Christ. This is so marvelous. This is why non-use is so crucial. This is why when Christians don't use their gifts, it is so crucial and so critical to the body because... You're unique. Nobody else can take your place in the body. Nobody else can fill the ministry that God has designed for you. And if you don't function in your giftedness, you, in effect, cripple the body of Christ. And then the church presents to the world and presents to itself a crippled Christ. And may I suggest to you, that is not what we want to do. Would you agree? Now, we have these gifts... And there's an assumption, I think, in in Peter's words, in his command to use them, that we're not all using them. That's why there's this command. Use it. Use it. The assumption, I think, underlying it is that not all Christians are using it. And I think if if we were to be realistic, we'd have to say, you're right. Not all Christians are using their spiritual gifts. The church isn't functioning on all eight cylinders, so to speak. We're kind of dragging along. We all have gifts. And sometimes we may use them improperly. Sometimes we may use them in our own flesh. Look at me. Look at me. Look, what I, look at my gift. Not at all in the power of the Spirit. Or we may not use them at all. In any case, the body of Christ is hindered service, the building up of the church, does not then occur. So Peter says, in effect, don't be disobedient. Don't be disobedient. You've received a gift. Use it. Use it. Serve. You're a Christian now. You're a a Christian. And then in verse 11, he shows us that our gifts fall into two general categories. There are two general gatherers. Look at verse 11 with me of our passage. He says, If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. What are the two categories? Well, very simply, you either have a speaking gift or a serving gift. You have a speaking gift or a serving gift. Speaking can include preaching, teaching, prophecy, Word of knowledge, wisdom, discernment, leadership, inclusive of those kinds of things, expressions. Serving, gift of service, maybe administration, prayer, kind of a quiet, silent, behind-the-scenes thing. Showing mercy, gift of helps. There are a number of arenas of giftedness in the serving arena. But if you have the gift of speaking... He says to us, if you have the gift of speaking, if it falls within that, that arena, that, that general category, then you want to make sure when you speak, what should you speak? The very words of God. The very words of God. If you have the gift of prophecy or teaching or knowledge or wisdom or exhortation, when you open your mouth, you want to make sure that what you say is God's truth. 
This is why I teach verse by verse. I want to go verse, sometimes word by word, right? Syllable by syllable. syllable. <laughs> when I speak to you, I want to, I just, I want to make sure I'm, I'm as close and as, no, as, as much as I can the very word of God. So we're not going to take huge chunks of scripture and make some huge assumptions. We're going to just go verse by verse. So whenever we, we use a speaking gift, we want to speak God's truth, not just our own ideas. And there's lots of that going on in the church today. Lots of that. If you, if you listen to different preaching, you watch Christian TV, listen to Christian radio sometimes, you hear the most incredibly inane, vile stuff that is perpetrated and put across on Christians. And, and this is... Christian teaching. No, it's not. If you have a speaking gift, Peter says, make sure that you're speaking God's truth. As if you're speaking His very words. If you have a serving gift, he says, then you do that by the strength that God supplies. Again, it requires that you be full of the Spirit. You're not in your own strength. By the strength that God supplies. Energized by the Holy Spirit, so you're not again doing it in the flesh. You're not just going through the motions. Okay, I'll serve. Okay, I'll exhibit the gift of mercy. Okay, I'll do that. No, no, no. We want to. We want to be carried along, energized, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that that gift really does provide a service that impacts the body for the building up. So, beloved, Peter gives us. Full instruction here on spiritual gifts. In those couple of verses, he gives us full instruction on spiritual gifts. He tells us the extent of the giftedness. Every Christian has a gift, individually and uniquely. He's told us the source. They come from God. They can't be sought. They're given freely as a grace gift from God's sovereignty. He's told us the nature of the gift. They are Special spiritual enablements through which the Holy Spirit works to build up the body. We have an obligation to use the gift as a stewardship before God. He told us that there's great variety to the gifts, as endless as our imagination and beyond, and because each one is so marvelously unique. And he's told us that there are categories, two major categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, beloved, those are our instructions. The Christian life is fairly simple. Grow in personal holiness. Grow in love. Grow in service. That's it. That's the Christian life. That's what we want to aspire to this next year. God, I want to be more holy. I want to, I want to be more loving. I want to serve. That's it. Since you've been born again, if you, how many have been born again? How many have been transformed? How many, have, how many have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son whom He loves? How many have been given a new nature? And because of all of that, how many have a new desire to obey? I tripped you, tracked you. Yeah. 
You see, this incentive, this desire to obey comes with this new nature. All that he says to us comes to us. An eager heart. A heart that's eager to obey. Because it's what? It's been changed. It's been reborn. Made new. You have a desire to obey. So we've seen the incentive. The incentive, the second coming of Christ. The instructions, holiness, love, service. And finally, the last part, the last part of verse 11. The intention. The intention of all of this is found in the second part of verse 11. Very simply, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, what's the intention of all that we do? What's the intention of our holiness? What's the intention of our love? What's the intention of our service? That God may be what? That He may be honored, praised, and glorified. That's my intention. That's the intention of my life. That God be glorified through my life and all that I do. That's encapsulated in those few verses. And we can only glorify God through whom? Jesus Christ. You've got to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, God will not, cannot be glorified. We want to do all we do to the glory of God. Do we not? Look at these verses real quickly. 1 Corinthians 10.31, where Paul says, Whatever you eat or drink, he says, even in the most simple, mundane, everyday things of life, whatever you do, do it all for the what? Glory of God. Whatever I do, I should do it for the glory of God. My intention ought to be For this year, that God, you're glorified by how I live my life. And more particularly, as I grow in holiness. More particularly, as I grow in love. More particularly, as I grow in service using the gifts that you've given me. Beloved, the way to do all of this, in the light of the second coming, very simply, he gives it to us. To live our lives for the glory of God. And I love the last last word of this passage It's as if Peter can't resist ending this passage with that word. What's the word? Amen. 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 So let it be. So let it be. It's as if he's saying, let my life be glorifying to you, Lord. This is how I want to live my life. This is how I want to live my life. Beloved, remember we said this some weeks ago. The cost of discipleship is high, is it not? Jesus reminds us to count the cost, and the cost is high. But there's a greater cost, and the greater cost is paid by those who reject Jesus Christ. Let us not be counted among that number. Let us all tonight be counted amongst that number of people who have received Christ, and through Him, And through that relationship with Him and the strength and power He provides, we see God glorified. Let our lives be that way. God does expect the best from us, doesn't He? He expects the best from us. He says, be holy because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. And we give Him our best. He gets the glory. He's like our Father. I wanted my Father to be proud of me. I wanted whatever I did to reflect 
honor back to my father. I want my son to do the same. Whatever he does, however he lives, I want him to, his life to reflect honor back to me. That's not an egotistical thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I think that God has built that into our hearts as, as parents and as people because it reflects back to him. How you live speaks volumes about who I am. How you live speaks volumes about what I can do in someone's life. Amen? Lord, thank you again for your grace to us. Thank you for our time tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you always speak to us through your word. Lord, help us all to be people who embrace this new year, certainly with a a commitment to living our life, a life of holiness, a life of love, and Lord, indeed, a life of service. I pray that as we anticipate this new year, that each one of us would look and evaluate, think through. Lord, bring to you in prayer all of these areas and ask you to clarify for us and direct us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. We love you tonight. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment. I just want to give someone an opportunity. Maybe you've come tonight and you want to, maybe you want to commit your life to Christ for the first time or maybe you're in a place where you've been lukewarm in your faith or maybe you've fallen away. You found yourself here tonight. God brought you here. Maybe some of the things that we talked about tonight have, have, have just kind of piqued your heart, spoken to your life. Maybe you don't know where to start. Maybe you're, you've isolated yourself and, and, quite frankly, you're empty and you don't really know how to be full of the Holy Spirit. But all you know tonight is that, is that you, God's talked to you and you want a new start. And I can't think of a better time than the beginning of a new year to anticipate that. I'd like to lead you in a prayer, just very simply a prayer of dedication, a prayer of commitment. And we're just going to ask God, ask God to help you and to lead you and to strengthen you. We're going to admit the need. Lord, I I don't know what to do. I'm empty. I I need your help. We're going to come to him. We're going to say, God, help, please. He said, I'll meet all your needs. And he knows your spiritual weakness. You can't generate it yourself. You can't make yourself born again. You can't make yourself spiritual. It requires God's power in your life. But you've got to want it. You've got to be willing to come with empty hands of faith and say, fill me up. Help me. Help me be what you want me to be and what you made me to be. So I want to pray a prayer in just a minute, just a little short prayer. But I'm not going to pray it all by myself. I've already prayed that for myself, and I'll be praying it all weekend. But I want to know if somebody wants to pray with me. And if anything I've said tonight makes a difference, if God's spoken to your heart about these things and you want to come along, then just signal by lifting your hand up right now. Go. I see this hand here. Over there, I see that hand too. Anybody else? Maybe you want to receive Christ in your life for the first time. Maybe you want to affirm, just affirm your faith. 
Just lift your hand. You know who you are. I see the hand back there. These hands down here in front. Way in the back. I see a hand way in the back row. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, I see your hand there. Okay, good. Anybody else? Okay, if you lift your hand, I want you to stand with me right now. Let's stand before the Lord. We're going to take a stand tonight. Stand right up. And lift your hands with me. We're going to just reach out to God. Just stretch those hands up in the air. We're just going to reach out to God as our Heavenly Father. You pray this prayer. Make it your prayer. God, help me. You know where I'm at. You know the condition of my life. Lord, I've sinned. I've fallen short. I'm weak. I'm, a, I'm just... I'm not a happy person in, in terms of, Lord, what I need to be and ought to be. I ask you to save me. I confess tonight that I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died. I believe he was buried for three days. He rose from the dead after those three days to bring new life. And, Lord, tonight I receive new life by faith. I want to be a new creation. Oh, Lord, I want a new life. I want a new beginning. And so I, I just reach up to you tonight. By faith, empty hands of faith, I ask you to cleanse me, save me, make me into a new creation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, energize my life towards holiness and fervent love and Lord's service. Remind me each day, O God, to look to you. Remind me each moment of every day that I'm utterly dependent on you. Help me, God. Help me to bring you honor and praise and glory. I give you thanks tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. God bless you. God bless you. The ushers are going to give you a little envelope, and there's some information in that envelope that's going to be helpful to you. And also there's a card on the front. Take a moment, fill it out, and leave the card on the seat if you would. Let's stand together. Let's sing praises to our God, shall we? As we sing tonight, let's think about the things that we've, we've talked about, we've studied tonight, and let the Holy Spirit just cause them to come deeply into our hearts. How can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved. Yet you give to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not explain.